You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Oh, Michael. We've really kicked it into high gear with our legacy series that we've got coming down the, the hop. We recently spoke with uh, Tony Aspler. Yep. And uh, we have a couple of really exciting ones coming out. Uh, I know we've said that Thomas Bashelder is not part of the legacy series, but we've got part two. Yes, which is a, a hot mess, but a fun hot mess. And we did another Stump the Soup with him, and we sat down with uh, Wes Lowry. Yes. One of, probably one of the most humble, talented winemakers in the province. And the youngest member of the Legacy podcast. Yes. But his family's been doing it for a really long yeah, that's, time. That's the, that's the interesting part is mom and dad did not want to, But you know what? That story comes out when we have Wes on. Right now... Our most listened to podcast features Alan Jackson. Yes, that is true. So we had to get the other half of... Jackson Triggs yeah, the on reason, the podcast. The reason, the reason that Alan Jackson is, is I, I think it's self-explanatory. Everybody thinks we've talked with the, the country singer, and we, we didn't. No. No. But this podcast, we talked to Don Triggs. And that was, you know, we never thought we'd get a chance to actually sit down with him yeah. personally. We I thought, thought we were doing this over Skype for sure. And a big, big shout out to um, Woodman Wine and Spirits, who... Uh, just out of the blue, sends us an email and says, Don Triggs is coming to town. We know you want to speak to him. Do you want to speak to him? Yes. And we dropped everything and sat down with Don. And here's what it sounded like. Michael, we've got a very special guest live and in the flesh. And I think this is, we don't get to do these legacy podcasts together because you're usually dragging them down to the studio in St. Catharines and making me suffer in, in Toronto but on we, my own. This this really is a legacy podcast that we've been looking forward to and we thought, you know what, maybe we'll get it by phone maybe one day. But to have Donald Triggs in the flesh and pouring some of his current wines for us is amazing. Yep. So we will be talking a little British Columbia. We will be talking a lot of Ontario. So I hope you can go back. <laughs> it's only a few years. I'm sure of it. So, Don, uh, say hello everyway. Uh, anyway. I'm delighted to be here, Andre and Michael, and I'm not so sure I can handle all this pressure, but I'll give it a go. <laughs> so, we, we've already spoken to, uh, to Alan, and uh, so now we get the other half of, yep. if anybody hasn't figured out what Triggs is, Jackson Triggs. You were the big gun. You were the big boy in town. But uh, before you were that, you were just starting out mm -hmm. what made you want to get into the wine business in Ontario well well I guess um, as I was saying to Andre I, I, Andre right yep I grew up on a farm in the prairies Manitoba um, I'll tell you a little story my uh, my dad uh, uh, was a fabulous farmer my twin brother and I, where all we wanted to do was to continue to drive the, the business forward, the prosperity. We saw a huge future there. Then my, uh, my dad's brother, who he was in partnership with, became very sick. And my dad sat the two of us down and said, I think one of you has to leave because there's not going to be enough here to divide four ways because we're going to have to look after our uncle, who's sick. So uh, dad took 
two matches, broke one off, and he gave us two matchsticks. And my brother and I drew a match. And I got the short match. And the result of that is that's how I, I ended up leaving home. Wow. And uh, I always tell that story because people say, uh, you, you drew the short straw. And I say, uh, people throw you curveballs in life, but you never know until you get up and hit it. And uh, as it turned out, that wasn't a bad curveball because it created a whole new opportunity for me in life. But at the at the time, it was a little bit different, if you know what I mean. I would guess. Uh, yeah. But, so so was, that's how I ended up leaving the farm. So when you left the farm, did that take you straight to Ontario? No, I, I spent um, four years. Uh, I, I scraped, I got some scholarships and bursaries. I saved up about $350 and... Tuition at the time was three hundred and twenty-five dollars at University of Manitoba. Thousand, three hundred and twenty-five dollars, <laughs> and oh I, I, I was able to get a, enroll in the Bachelor of Science in Agriculture program, and uh, found my way through that program. I worked my way through uh, summer jobs, uh, working uh, weekends, that sort of thing, and uh, then from there ended up. Uh, uh, coming to Ontario, and I did uh, another couple years studying business, and uh, I got a master's in business from Ivy Business School, and my wife got a PhD, uh, which is pulling hubby through, because <laughs> she was working, supporting me at that point while we went through school. Which you met your wife where? Back in Manitoba? We or? met. We met at a, at a at a dance in at the University of Manitoba. Okay, got it. So she and, came. She comes with you to Ontario. Oh yeah, and she was raised in a farm just like I was. So, so that's how I ended up coming to Ontario. Uh, started working in. Marketing for Colgate Palmolive was my first job. Okay. Out, out selling soap and toothpaste and all that good stuff. Yeah. But uh, learning the discipline of business a little bit. And then when, uh, I think it was Labatt at the time was buying wineries. They had bought Parked at Wines. They were about to buy Shadow Gay. And they were also looking at purchasing Casabella in B.C., they were looking for a marketing guy. And I would have paid them to take the job. <laughs> because here was a job. Where I, there was something that intrigued me about wine right from the start. Because so do, you, do you remember then the moment when you, that you started getting into wine? Because obviously you had an interest well, in wine before. Well, it was, it, here job. was this product that you grow on the land that you put on the dinner table. Yeah. You know, and that expresses the land, and it's an organic product. It it comes from the soil. I spent a whole summer doing soil survey at University of Manitoba for Professor Fred Wilson, and my job was digging sixty six holes a day, three feet with a spade, and ordering to four feet. And so, in the process and working on farm, you get to develop a, a sense of the soil and the land. And to me, that's very important to me. You grew um, up on a farm too, didn't you? Andre? No, but there were farms at the end of my street, literally, okay. not figuratively. So, so when somebody says, "Here's an opportunity to work in the wine business," where there, where it has some of the excitement of consumer package marketing, 
but at the same time is grounded in the soil. That really turned my crank, and I have to say to this day, it still turns my crank. Obviously, what I have to, yeah. Because it is, it is one of the most, and uh, you know, Mother Nature's in there twisting things around all the time, making it interesting. No two years are the same. Um, of course, we have maybe a little bit of global warming going on that's also creating change. It's a, it's a dynamic, evolving wonderful industry to work in and the people are fabulous too everywhere along so, the way oh I get, so you you Labatt says come work for us you say obviously yes and somewhere in there you meet Alan Jackson am I correct or is there a little bit more um, to that to the story well uh, Alan uh, the first 10 years of the business I ended up uh, running the Canadian business with the help of a great team and then they moved me to California and I was managing a very large winery that Labatt owned in California called Lamont In the, it was called M. Lamont Winery in Arvin California. Now I've never, I've never heard of that one. Are they still around, or are they, uh, are they turned into Gary, something? Gary Heck uh, of Corbell bought the winery, and he makes all his brandy and a lot of his bubble there, Corbell Bell, Champagne. Yeah. Okay, so that makes sense. Uh, but uh, the winery was huge. It covered, uh, I think it was pretty close to 160 acres uh, the employees rode around in uh, golf carts or bicycles because it was so big. Um, but it was uh, understanding the real production engine of the wine industry in California. And I, I worked there for three years, uh, a, a real growing experience for me because I started to understand the, the real fundamental economics of the, of the growing as well as the winemaking. So when you were working down there, was this... In, the, in an office, or were you down on the crush pad now getting your hands dirty? A little bit of everything. Okay. We arrived there uh, three months after I arrived. Okay. The whole, at that point, all the wineries in California were in a union. Okay. And uh, the, the union went on strike. And uh, the and the and the wineries didn't agree to the new uh, agreement that was coming forward, so we were without workers to make the wine. So this is like the grape growers have gone on strike. This is the actual workers. The, the workers in the wineries. Okay. And what year? What year is this? Too. Uh, Nineteen eighty-two. Okay. 1979, pardon me. 79. So, 79. So, you are so, an indelicate so, question, but how old are you at this point? Oh, old enough. Old enough. <laughs> okay. All right. Got it. Anyway, the grapes started arriving. Like uh, 20 semi trailers of grapes lined up on the, on the road to come into the winery. It was a big winery. We had like uh, 24 uh, presses, 12 crushers. Uh, took a lot of. A lot of fruit in at a time, and nobody in the winery. So we brought in the sales force from across the country, the accounting people from out of the office, and we were all out there making the wine with the winemaker telling us what to do. Okay. So that was my, or my introduction to California. And, and that year we made, uh, I think it was about 120,000 tons of grapes in the Holy wine. Holy crap. 
And to put that in perspective, I think all of uh, Ontario is maybe 44,000 tons, and BC is maybe 25,000, 30,000 tons. It was a huge, but the last year we were there, we processed 180,000 tons. And, but it was, it was incredible stress because uh, you don't want the employees. We couldn't bring the employees back if we wanted to because it was a big bargaining association where we were one of the smaller big wineries and Gallo was in it and everyone yeah. else, and we had to play the game with the, on the else. team, if you know what I mean. But it was a learning curve. At the end of it all, it was really fun. We got everybody back together. We had uh, we had uh, three or four different religious uh, denomination priests and rabbis and everything else, and we we put them in one group to crush, and then we had the, several other groups. We had these big bins, which everybody was on a team, and we we just had a lot of fun to try and decompress and get everybody back together again. It was how, did the, how did the wine turn out? The wine was okay. Okay, because <laughs> because we had and we had a, a two highly trained winemakers as a part of the team. Okay. Obviously, management they can't let's go on face strike. it, management were hauling hoses and doing washing out tanks and yeah. stuff they could do. So yeah. at some point yeah. now you have to come back to yeah. Ontario. You're mm. done in in California, mm. yeah. and you spent what three years there, and then you come back to Ontario. What's the next job? Uh, next job, I left California and I spent seven years in British Columbia. Okay. I was uh, running a horticultural business called Fizens, uh, and Green, For Labatt's or no? Uh, no, Green Cross. It was a British company that owned it. Uh, I was traveling back and forth to the UK a lot, and in the end... Uh, so was, you've left the beverage industry I for these years. I left the wine business at that point. I okay. wanted uh, motivations to come back to Canada. Our children were young, yeah. and we had a fundamental decision to make. Did we, we knew that if we stayed, we were going to stay, uh, or we were going to come back. And I... Uh, I, uh, I guess we made, uh, Elaine and I made the decision that we wanted our children to be exposed to Canadian values. We said, after that, you can make the decision you want in life. I'm sure you will. But we at least wanted that original exposure. And that was the main reason we came back to Canada. That so point. what you're saying is if you'd stayed, we could be talking to you about Gallo Triggs instead, <laughs> yeah, of, instead of Jackson Triggs. <laughs> or, or something rather, uh, <laughs> not quite that grand, I'm sure. So seven years in the horticultural yeah. uh, business, was there any connections there when you were in BC that you it were was, drawn to the wine there? Or well, like uh, the, what I would say about it, it was still growing things. Okay. Okay, we, we, uh, the horticulture business, we were growing all sorts of uh, uh, growing mixes, mediums for the professional grower, the hobby gardener, green cross products. It was all about growing still. And uh, so there was that connection. And I, I did that. Uh, they moved me to the UK. I was working out of the UK for a while, commuting actually from Vancouver. It was a bit, wow. of, a, a bit of a tough shtick at the time. Uh, and then... Um, Labatt uh, put their businesses up for sale in 1989. Okay, so you're in BC uh, at this time, and I, and I always tell people when I, when I lived out mm -hmm. in BC, they always say, and you came back to Ontario. 
So what you're telling me is that you also lived in BC much longer than I did. I was I there lived six there months. seven years. You were there seven years, was, and then you come back to Ontario. I came back to Ontario, and in fact, I was spending time a lot of a lot of time commuting back and forth to UK. But then uh, Alan Jackson called me and said that, that we want to do this LBO of the wine business, uh, and another uh, a friend at the time who I'd worked with in Labatt, Bob Luba, who's just passed away recently, fabulous guy, uh, said, well, we need someone to help as a general manager. And Alan and, La and Bob Luba called me, and at that time I was in the UK. Uh, so I, uh, I stopped here on a couple trips back, and uh, uh, things sort of evolved from there. I know when we talked to Alan Jackson, he talked about how the winery was nearly called Triggs Jackson. Well, that's a different issue. The, the winery, <laughs> the, the four wineries we bought, were, which were what Labatt owned, uh, were, I hate to say it, they were bottling plants with a mediocre, minor commitment to vineyard. They were making spar uh, coolers, and some very ordinary wine. I hear that, Michael's a big fan of coolers, so he'll okay. be... Okay. What? Disappointed <laughs> to hear these being where did, dismantled. Where did that come in? <laughs> anyway, they... Were you just talking they, about they, boons they, the other day? No, when, that was you for your wedding. You wanted everybody to bring some boons for oh, it. No, that's so, so when we got into that business, we realized that it was uh, positioned on the wrong edge of the future of the business. Okay. And, and we realized that if it was going to become something, we had to reposition the business. We were, we were optimistic, perhaps too much so, but very optimistic that free trade was the game changer for us. Got it. Because we believed that it would, for the first time, allow us to uh, get the funds to rip out and replant vineyard. And it would allow us to respond to what the market wanted. That was the fundamental that we went in. We put our life savings into it. There was, uh, at the time, 26 employees that put money into the business. So it was really an employee purchase. But uh, five of us put up the bulk of the money. We sold, I sold my ski chalet. We, sold our, we refinanced our homes. We did all that crap. Wow. Um, but the whole idea was that there was the potential of something good at the end of the tunnel okay. and knowing that there was some big issues. Uh, we sold off uh, we sold off one winery, the Alberta winery. We consolidated production. We reduced marketing spend and overheads. The first two years were really tough sledding. But after two years, that was about when we launched the brand that you're referring to, yeah, um, and that came out. That basically came out of the idea of where the future was. Well, like the question I have is: even at this time, you would have had to deal with all sorts of bureaucracy. And mm -hmm. as the people on this podcast know, like I'm making a little bit of wine, and even now, I have a hard time understanding why people would have seen potential in the industry because it is very difficult mm -hmm. to make. A decent profit, especially if you're coming from a business background. Like, what was it that made you see the potential, especially um, in the framework of what the LCBO would have looked like in 1990 compared the, to what it is the now? KGBO. Yeah. 
Well, it was, uh, uh, you know, you, you can sort of look at it two ways. The one, the one way you would look at it, it is an industry that is moving and changing very slowly because it is mired in uh, bureaucracy. And, and that's a good thing because what that means is there's some predictability to the business environment you're getting into. Okay. Okay. The second thing, which was very interesting, uh, looking back on it, the um, when you we bought into the business, we had ten receivables, one from each province in Canada. Ten. If you're in a business now, you're selling to uh, restaurants, you're selling to private wine stores in Alberta and grocery chains and all the rest. you got your receivables coming out your yin-yang. Some of them pay in 10 days and some of them pay in, in uh, 90 days if you get the money. So here we were in an environment where we had 10 receivables that were all government-backed. Okay. An incredible asset when you think about it in terms of taking one of the risks of the business away. We knew we were going to get paid. That's an incredible thing, starting a business. Um, and, and more importantly, when we looked at the receivables, the other thing that we saw was that in some of the, the provinces were paying us in 90 days. Hmm. And so the first thing we did was to go to talk to some people and uh, I, I will never forget our finance guy, Peter Patchett, who just retired. Uh, his job was to go and sit down at those liquor boards every, every other day and try and get it from 90 days to 30 days. And did that work? It did. Oh, wow. And, that, and it was basically, what was it? It was saying, we're a bunch of, we're an employee-owned business. Can you help us out? Because it was 26 employees that owned the business. It was not a, a Labatt or Seagram's or some other international corporation. And, and they basically put our receivables from the top of the pile to the bottom, and we got paid in 30 days. And that, made, that, that, that took the heat off of, off of us right away. Wow. That's so, the business side of it. No, but it's, 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 it is a yeah, fascinating yeah. aspect to, to, to really, really look at because I think things have progressed now where when you're running, especially mm -hmm. in Ontario, a small winery, it's once again receivables out the yin-yang. And if you talk to some of these small producers, there are restaurants that either don't pay or don't pay forever. And so I don't you're they, they close, close before they pay any of their bills. So that's why though, looking at the business environment today, it's very different. So if I get the timeline right, 89 you look at uh, mm. buying or you do buy it, and mm. 91 is basically when you get everything going, and so there's two years where nothing, well, you're just, you're just we were, kind of we making were things. We were shutting down facilities. We were streamlining yeah. production. Like we shut down the Alberta facilities, sold out yeah. the plant, moved that production to BC. Uh, so we, 1991, we did a basically. lot of what I would call heavy lifting. So 91, okay. basically everything kind of rolls out the door. Now you're you've got wine coming mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. with the Jackson Triggs label. Mm -hmm. Why didn't did you fight for for Triggs Jackson, or you just went? I don't no, care. I just want to no, make money. No, that happened. I'll tell you the background in that. We had some consumer research, and what the consumer research told us uh, was, first of all, consumers 
like the idea that you're willing to put your name on the bottle because it suggests that you are proud of it and you care more. Okay, so that came out in research. The second thing that came out in research, another thing that came out in research was that President's Choice had a very strong image because it implied that the president was somehow endorsing the product. Mm -hmm. The third thing that we learned was that there was a brand at the time, which is still very famous, called Jackson, Kendall Jackson, okay. yeah. in California. And we had it in some of the uh, con uh, consumer groups as well. And what we learned from that was that there was something warm and fuzzy about the consumer's idea of partners working together. Okay? In other words, if two partners can work together, it's, it says a little bit about their humanity. Yeah. Okay? Because it's not as easy as just doing it yourself. You have another partner. You have to consider that partner. You have to... You have to bend and give and all the rest. It's There's, really interesting listening to you talk yeah. about this because when we started at the beginning, you mm -hmm. talked about the romanticism connected to wine, mm -hmm. that it's an organic product that you put on the table. And now listening to you talk about the marketing side, it's sort of a cutthroat businessman's view of how to get that bottle onto the table. And if they could have had their way, they would have called it Kendall Jackson drinks. <laughs> oh, or whatever. But the point is, all of those things, then we took the team, there were five of us at the time, there was, uh, uh, we went on a, a visit through California in a, in a minivan, the poor guys in the back, because every time we went around those corners, they were getting sick in the back. <laughs> and, uh, and anyway, and, and, but we had a, a strategic planning session. We knew we had a vision of launching a new premium brand, but we had to name it. Mm -hmm. And we had this research, which was telling us some of the, the good things and some of the not-so-good things. So we concluded that we wanted to uh, name it after two of the five partners. Okay. Okay. So we put the five partners' names in a hat because we were equal partners, and we picked out two. Okay? That's what happened. And the two that were picked out were Jackson and Triggs. And, and we were originally, somebody said Triggs Jackson. And I'll never forget, Alan Jackson said, no, that sounds too much like Briggs and Stratton. I'll never forget the words. And as a result of that, it then got flipped to Jackson Triggs. But John Hall's name was in the in the in the. Write him down, Michael. Peter Hall. Granger was in there. Because this story is getting better with every person we're hearing it from. And Rick Th and Rick Thorpe was in there. They were Thorpe. all in the, so the hat. It, so it theoretically could have been called Hall and Thorpe, or it could have been called Hall Granger or yeah. Granger or Triggs or, wow. or or Hall Jackson or wherever. Wow. But the whole idea was naming it after the partners, and we picked two. I think around that time calling okay. it Hall and anything would have been difficult because of Hall and Oates. Well, so there was real serendipity about it, but the fundamental I go back to, the strategy was sound yep. of tying a brand to partners that have ownership and that care about the business. That was the most important thing. Now, when you okay. were down here and you were looking at getting this set up, were you drawn? Was there any moment when you were tasting the Ontario wine and the wines that would have been available at the time, which I guess at the time would have been places like Hillebrand, Chateau de Charme, Cave Spring, Inniskillen. 
uh, and probably a couple of others. That there, is was, Stony Ridge there was, there was, there was, there was enough yeah. uh, vestiges of quality showing up. Was there a particular uh, grape that you were drawn to? I, where you I, I saw it? huge potential in Chardonnay back then. There we go. Okay, I really did, and and I, I and we saw enough then to say. There is there is potential here. There's no stopping you. Ten, ten, ten of these ten of these is podcasts it, like this. He's a Chardonnay lover. Uh, I don't know if he saw his face when he tried your Chardonnay. Answer, finally right. got the answer I was looking for. It only okay. took ten of these. Oh, but it, but it really was uh, Chardonnay and Riesling were the two naturals in the and they still are in that. Okay. I I agree with you completely. Yeah. Michael. But you didn't see any red varieties that were going to be the. Uh, we the we didn't have a lot of consistency in ripening reds at that point. We had a lot of stuff that had potential that was overcropped in the in the in the in the in the peninsula at that time. In particular, the hybrids and and even some of the Bordeaux reds. Uh, and and as you know, uh, Pinot Noir at that point was not a lot around. It wasn't that it wasn't really at that point understood or appreciated how to grow it. So at this point, we're called Jackson Triggs. At which point do we look at expanding? Um, We're in 91, brand starts. Now I'm going to fast forward you through, and you're thinking, okay, it's time to expand Jackson Triggs and start buying other wineries, turning it into Vincor. Where, how does that happen? Uh, that's, uh, gee, that's hard to remember. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one who doesn't remember. He remembers his, his first job. Yeah, remember my first job really well. Um, that was an evolution that um, I, I think the fundamental at the end of the day, the industry was going through a, a, a real, uh, uh, I, they use the word disruption a lot now, okay? okay. Disruption in industry. There was, there was no other industry that went through more disruption than the Canadian wine industry because an awful lot of the old players in it had outdated technology, outdated uh, skills, out, outdated vineyard, and they were thrown literally on the junk pile or they had to be reworked to meet the needs of the new consumer. So that, that's major disruption. Uh, some a lot of people got retrained. Uh, yeah, bottling lines. That part of it probably required the least change, but there was a lot of change required in the marketing and in the technology. Wineries had to be rebuilt from the bottom up because th th there wasn't a lot in there that could really make premium wine. Mm. Um, you know, old tanks with uh, all sorts of disease in them and wood tanks and all sorts of other stuff uh, that you, you just couldn't use. Wow. And, and uh, stainless steel fermenters without tops on them or without chimneys and other stuff that created excess of oxidation. You had all sorts of issues. Uh, um, just very low standard stuff that was okay if you were making a wine that you wanted to intentionally oxidize, okay. like a sherry or a port, maybe. Port. Yeah. But if you were trying to oxidize things, the equipment was perfect. But that's not where the market was going. So it had to be redone. Wow. And that was a big part of the cost of re repositioning the industry 
and repositioning the companies that evolved and became part of it. So our, your strategy with uh, expanding the business and becoming Vincor and growing was to do with modernizing some of the players who just couldn't keep up with the vision that you and the other partners had. Um, I, I don't want to say that we had the, the, the whole answer to it. I think a lot of the industry was seeing the same things. It wasn't just uh, what we did uh, because uh, some of the other competitors did a great job too. Yeah, obviously. But, but it, was, it was really new technology in the venue, new technology in the winery. Um, what I would call developing world-class standards. Are you talking about VQA? I'm talking about quality. I'm also talking about efficiencies throughout okay. the business. Performance standards. Do we package and ship a case to the customer as efficiently as as uh, as bottled water? Got it. So or or, or are we uh, back in a in a in another Neanderthal age in doing that? Because so the reality is, at the end of the day. If we're going to be competitive in the business, we've got to do it as efficiently as Nestle does a case of bottled water. Uh, we've got to be able to package it, ship it, uh, manage the logistics and all of that at a, at a similar standard. So let's go back to where you, were, you, where you thought, you know, um, free trade is going to be our, our saving grace. Did you feel like you were kicked in the nads when you saw the free trade deal? Uh, no, we knew that was happening when we made the decision to buy the business. Oh, you did? You, do, you knew we that knew we were going to kind of sell out the wine business? And we knew that, that when we bought uh, uh, Labatt's wine businesses, we knew free trade was coming. Yeah, but when and, you saw the final deal... And we knew that Labatt was going to take all of their negotiating power to protect their beer business. Yep. Okay, we knew that. So, but but what we fundamentally believed was that uh, free trade was going to allow us for the first time to take the take the shackles off of us and to be able to try to respond to what the consumer wanted to drink. And do you feel that it it, it worked that way? Oh, definitely, definitely, because at the start there was a replanting of vineyard. Uh, we uh, that restrained us at the start until we got more and more supply. But that was fundamental because without the improvement in quality and without, uh, you know, the, the half a dozen or so premium estate wineries that were in the, starting down that road, like in Eskelon at that point in time, uh, they needed another 10 or 20 wineries around them to have 50 wineries around them to give them the momentum to really change the image of the industry. Because it's not just about having the great quality, it's about the consumers starting to believe that your quality as an industry is evolving and improving. It's not just having it in the bottle, it's having enough critical mass where the market starts to accept that it's happening. So you build this, this big company up, Vincor, then it sells to Constellation. Now you're out. You're out of the wine business. Now, what do you do with yourself? I don't know what year. What year is that again that you, you sold it out? Uh, June the 5th, 2006. You seem to remember that quite well. So 2006. <laughs> it was my wife's birthday. Perfect. So you sell, <laughs> you sell, and now did you immediately go, we're moving out to British Columbia, or you uh, say we're staying here in Ontario? No, no, no. Um... 
selling out of uh, something like uh, Vincor, you know that that was uh, you know we built a big business. We had when we sold it, we had twenty two hundred fifty employees. We had uh, annualized sales of about six hundred fifty million dollars. Holy crap! And our EBITDA the last year was just shy of a hundred million dollars in profit. It was a big business. It was we were selling twenty million cases of wine uh, in five continents: uh, the UK, uh, United States, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada mainly. Um, it was. Uh, uh, a lot of effort by a very fabulous team of people um, and when we finally sold it it uh, it's uh, I guess what I would say it's the classic definition of happy and sad of ambivalence because you're giving up your baby but you're also getting some rewards on the other side but there's a real sadness Although you have never sold a child. I just want yeah. to get that out of there. Yeah. I want to get that out of there. Yeah, it, it's like selling a child. It really is. Okay. It really is because you've given it so much. So, so selling the business was, you, you, go through a, you go through a stage of happy, sad, of mourning, and uh, a little bit of mourning involved, uh, of, of actually coming to grips with the fact that you've made that decision. Um. I guess I um, I took about six months, and I started to get bored, <laughs> really bored. And um, I was out west to see, at that point, our grandchildren were all living in uh, B.C. and Australia. This is important. And we went to see the grandchildren in B.C., and I said to my wife, I said, Hmm, maybe I'll just drop into the Okanagan and see what's going on. So I went to the Okanagan and saw an old friend there, Rick Thorpe, who was one of the you. original partners. He at that point was a member of the British of the BC government, the Liberal government. He was the minister in the government. But he's still one of my closest friends. And I said, uh, Rick, uh, I'm thinking about planting grapes again. And, oh, he started swearing at me like he was only... And, and uh, then I wrote my three daughters and said, I'm thinking about growing grapes again. Two of them gave me all sorts of trash. But, but my uh, youngest daughter, Sarah, who you mm -hmm. met, uh, she was doing foreign aid in the Philippines. She actually picked up the phone and called me and said, Dad, I'd be really interested. Okay. And that had a lot to do. Uh, I was interested in growing grapes. I really liked the growing side of the business. I wasn't at that point totally sure I wanted to put the, the energy into a winery and and all of that. But when Sarah said she was keen, that sort of was a was a was a, a key keg, a key in the whole thing. And I and I guess looking back on it, both my wife's family and my family, we've been in family businesses farming businesses, but family businesses for six generations. We, we, are, we are used to the strife, the passion, and the, and the challenges of working in a family business. And it's, and it's all of that, but there are rewards. Yeah. And, and so uh, that was uh, 
encouraging to me. So I think after that, that we sat down and we talked about it. That's when I decided. Hang on, hang on. You said grandkids in Australia too. Is there a mm -hmm. chance that Coleman was going to end up in uh, in the in Australia? Well, you know, our previous business, we owned two wineries in Australia, okay. and we owned one in New Zealand. Okay. So I I knew the territory reasonably well. I'd spent a for for five years, I think I was in Australia almost every three months. Okay. Um, but uh, that was not a part of the decision. But I think what was part of the decision, the idea of this next chapter in our life of being physically closer and seeing more of our grandchildren. Got it. So you move out to BC in what year? Uh, moved there in 0607. Okay. So immediately and after the ink was dry on the Vincor contract. It took six, six nine months. months. So, six nine months. So you're, not, you're, you're in BC. When does, the, when does the purchase of your current property? Looked for a year and a, a bit. Okay. Bought the land on July the 22nd, 2007. Okay, so 2007. First grade goes in the ground. Uh, took two years to study the soils, planted the first vines in 2009. And that plant is? Uh, those first vines were uh, Merlot, Cab Franc, and Cab South. Got it. So you were okay, thinking so the, yeah. what, what Oh, and, and I'm, I'm sorry? No, you finish what you were uh, Just to make it clear, the, uh, the, the reasons we went west, yep. there were three. Number one closer to our grandkids. Yep. Number two, I was intrigued by the challenge of growing and ripening Bordeaux reds. Okay. Okay. And I knew to a certain extent I couldn't do that consistently in Ontario. I agree with that. Okay. And and the th and the third one was uh, having had 10 years plus of growing experience in the Okanagan and in, because we had a, our own family vineyard in, in Niagara, as you know. Yep. Uh, we had a 100-acre vineyard there. Um, I, I knew that the desert climate in the Okanagan had less disease pressure, and if you were wanting to farm organically, it was an easier stick than Niagara. Okay, so those are the three reasons that, but I would say fundamentally it was to be closer to the Closer kids. to family. Okay. okay. Well, it's interesting the site that you've chosen in the Okanagan too. You're pretty far south down the valley on the west side. Mm -hmm. What drew you to that particular site? Because there's great wineries on the east side of the valley, mm -hmm. also not far south, in Cape. <laughs> Black Hills, Burrowing Owl, and you're on the side of Tinhorn Creek, yeah. and yeah, yeah, the big differences. Well, I guess big the, differences. The first thing I would say by the fact that we said we wanted to grow Bordeaux Reds, that meant 1600 to 1700 degree days. Yeah. We hired at the start of the project. I hired a. I went to Alain Suter, who was the technical quarterback from the Merlot family. He, he'd been the you know, a, a Grodler, O'Shesplain, Hope Badge, Liberal, Ferrier, Citran. He'd been their technical director before, uh, and he was working with us on Asoyas La Rose on the side uh, before he went out and started consulting full-time. And at, at, at that point, he was consulting full-time, and, and I said to Alan, is there, is there more? 
Um, is this the full potential of the Okanagan Valley? Because we'd see great improvement in Asoyas La Rose. And Atlanta had said, no, I think there's more. But I think you're going to have to really understand your terroir, you're going to have to invest more, and you're going to have to be very patient. So when we started the project, um, Alan uh, basically was there at the start. We looked at five sites from Naramata to the border. We did temperature studies on them, soil pits on them. We were, and of course, everything isn't available. You know, everything isn't available for sale. Uh, so we ended up selecting the site we have, glacial fluvial fan soils. I don't know how well you understand the Okanagan, okay. but the Golden Mile Bench is glacial fluvial fan. Elevated levels of minerals, mixtures of silt and gravel and rock. Yep. The other side of the valley, which has slightly higher heat, yes. is sand. Okay. Solid sand, okay. So we we preferred. At the end of the day, we preferred the site that we we picked. Um, uh, there was a, and I guess one of the other things that was very attractive about the site we picked, it was facing south and east, so we had the morning sun, uh, elevated levels of minerals, as I've always said. And by and large part, virgin land. There was only ten acres of the forty of the forty-eight that were developed. So, so you bought a forty-eight acre plot. That's yeah, right. So yeah. it's, it's half a half of what you had in Ontario. Yeah, but it was virgin land, and what that means is we got to make our own mistakes. We weren't <laughs> we weren't buying fifty acres where all the decisions had been made, and and maybe they were average decisions to grow average wine, and we were going to have to rip that out and start over because our vision was to make the very, very best we could, and that meant a lot of new technology in the vineyard. It meant high density. It meant a lot of other things that the old vineyards w wouldn't accommodate. Now, I'm interested in the marketing side now mm -hmm. again. Did you have the whole focus group and everything when you came up with the name for this winery? I mean, even take a look. Like, it's obviously very personal. And one of my favorite wines that make it through vintages, and one of my favorite labels, even before I found out it was the photo mm. of you and your twin brother, is the R&D yeah. label. Mm -hmm. And it almost, it's just, it, it, it's a very personal expression from you where you've gone from putting your name on the bottle to a picture of yourself as a child. Yeah. So, um, that, how, how did the branding and marketing, and how did you put that together? Well, it was family business. We did go, and we went to California. We had a, we hired a, a couple people that we had a lot of uh, regard for. Uh, David Schumann is one of them. He does a lot of the top label development for wine in the United States, and we did uh, two days of think tank sessions with him. Okay, and it was, was a think tank just you and family and him, or did you have outside people? And we there? had one professor from uh, UC Davis. Okay, okay, and the whole idea to start was, what are we? What's our vision of what we want to do? Uh, because you can't start with developing a name until you know what you really want to be when you grow up, sort of thing. So we spent uh, those. Uh, three days. We spent two days doing that. 
which is just us talking and sharing and, uh, uh, you know, all sorts of value stuff. Like, uh, do we want to be down to earth or do we want to be elite would be an example. All of that stuff, how do we want to be? As a, What's our vision of what we want to be? So after all of this research and development vision. and everything, and the vision and the vision quest that you go through, where does culmina come from? Well, culmina means peak in Latin, high point. And that was really a very important part of our vision. Could we drive quality higher? And that's the question we put to Alain Sutra. Could we drive quality higher and how are we going to do it? So Kalmana sort of symbolized what we were reaching for. My, my wife also points out that uh, it's the root of the word culmination. And she always gave me a clip in the back of the head and said, and this is your last project, Don. <laughs> <laughs> like culmination. <laughs> but but, but in, in reality, it, it's about what we're reaching for. And that's why the name meant so much, uh, made so much sense to us. Yeah. Um, the first wine here okay. is called, uh, we give all of our wines names. They're like our children. Okay. This is Unicus Gruner Veltliner. Now, you never mentioned Gruner when you talked about your plant. Yeah, you're talking no. all about uh, oh, all yeah. the Bordeaux varietals. Very good right. point. Very good point. The, the main vineyard we purpose-selected for heat units to ripen Bordeaux reds. But we also want to grow some whites. Also knew that the vineyard land that we, potential vineyard land that we had selected was too hot for the whites we wanted to grow. And what were the whites you wanted to grow? Uh, wanted to grow whites that aged and showed over time evolution. I didn't want to go grow whites that collapsed in the glass in a year or two years. They were, they were pretty and lovely, but I wanted to see how the terroir evolved over time. Okay. Okay, and Chardonnay, Riesling aged wonderfully. Okay, and differently, especially if you got good structure and good acidity. Mm -hmm. And and the and the other one that I was interested in was a total accident. I don't mind saying so, but we selected the land up at a a higher bench. It went from four hundred meters elevation up to six hundred meters. The degree days dropped from the sixteen fifty range down to twelve eighty to thirteen hundred. So. Oh. It was like going from Bordeaux to Burgundy. Mm -hmm. And that's where we grew the whites. How did we end up uh, with Gruner Veltliner? I guess uh, we saw sommeliers in uh, New York, San Francisco, all abuzz about how it was so wonderful to pair with uh, 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 a, lo a lot of this fusion, spicier uh, 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 preparation of food that was going on. We, we saw that it was uh, also worked well with more vegetative kale, uh, asparagus, chard, all these other things that were gaining momentum in the market. So that was interesting. We thought there was going to be demand there for it. Um, talked to Carl Kaiser, who had a very small block at Inniscone, ended up, as he told me, ripping it out for a parking lot, 
but he told me it was the hardiest vinifera he'd ever grown. Hmm. It was hardier. That makes than, sense. It's it was Austrian. hardier than Riesling or Chardonnay, and the only thing that was as hardy was some of the white hybrids like Sauvignon Blanc and Vidal. Wow. That's okay. that, makes, that makes sense okay. because of where it's So that was, you know, we're growing grapes in Canada at the end yeah. of the day. So that was interesting. And, and I guess the third thing that was intriguing to me after we had done some research on the variety, um, both Riesling and Gruner tend to really benefit if they're growing on some of these schistier mountain mm -hmm. soils where the roots can work into this soft rock sort mm -hmm. of thing. And our site up in Margaret's, we had a, an overburden of, uh, of uh, gravel and silt uh, of about anywhere from the, the shallowest would be three feet to 20 feet. And underneath was this was rock and where we cut into the face of the, in one place to create a road, we went back and looked at it the next year and there was this pile of sand all along the edge of the cliff. And what it was, it was the rock decomposing through the winter. It was very soft rock. Okay. So that really made us sort of, well, scratch our head, that's interesting. So that was the, the other reason we decided to plant the Gruner cause we, and the Riesling, because we thought it would really do well on that schist. Um, and uh, our French consultant, he also says it was a gamble. It's his wild card, and he knows nothing about it. So there you go. <laughs> so I, uh, Andre's gone through his glass of it, but uh, I, I guess I'm the one driving today. So uh, I'm okay with that. I can, I can say that as far as Gruner is concerned, there's a lot more fruit. It does feel very typical of, say, a Riesling from the this... Okanagan as well, where it's got a little bit more orchard fruit. Like, it's... It's peach, but it's subtle. Like it's not, it's not that concentrated, like kick you in the face peach that you'll get from uh, a riesling from the south part of the, the Okanagan. No, no, it's got no. a crap ton of mineral, which is what I expect from Gruner. But having that fruit really and just makes it like you don't. I find with Gruner, it's something you need to pair with food to really enjoy it. And I'm sure there's the Gruner lovers out there who are probably listening to this podcast, but I'm. Not one one of them. I like Gruner with food. I like it with sausages and, and greasy foods. See, I, I I don't get the peach that you're getting. I get a lot of mineral. Like it's just yeah. tons and tons and of that a mineral. A little bit acidity. of white. A little bit of white pepper in the. There's start. a little bit of a pepperiness, some citrus, yeah. some green apple. Yeah. Uh, like I'm getting a lot of, a lot of green green. Uh, green notes now. Mm -hmm. uh, Gruner usually has like an asparagus or a pea yeah. pod note. Not getting it from here, but lots and lots of that mineral green apple, uh, uh, herbal, piperiness. What I like about it is these, what I call Alsatian aromatics. The white pepper and some of those green notes you're talking about. But the weight in the glass, the actual weight, like a Chardonnay, it's full body. Mm -hmm. It's not light like a Riesling or the other Alsatian varieties. Um, we have had, we sell this just in restaurants. Uh, uh, we sell out every year. Uh, we don't have a lot. We make six, seven hundred cases a year, that's all. It's a, it's a challenge to grow. It wants to grow like crazy. We have to knock off pretty close to half the fruit. It ripens unevenly. It's like Zinfandel. You gotta go through and harvest twice. Because on the same vine, 
you'll have one bunch perfectly ripe and you have one beside it that looks ripe you turn around it's green on the other side and then another bunch beside it that's green period so we have to harvest uh, seven to ten days apart um baking it in the winery we've done this and we're still learning but this has been made 50% in stainless, about 28 in a concrete egg, and about 24% in a concrete amphora. Um, Interesting. Hmm? Interesting. So the first vintage of the Unicus is, is what? Or the this first is, year you made it? This is now the fourth year we've made so it. So we made four years. Okay. Um, but so we'll let you take a sip of it because you've been looking at it, and I know you probably know what it already tastes like, but you're probably just dying because you've been doing so much talking over the last little bit to have a, a glass of something. So I'll talk a little bit here while you wish it around in your mouth and get a good get a good taste of it. That's pretty refreshing now, isn't that? Nice zing in the back. Yeah, nice zing, nice zippiness. Yeah, I really like that. And and when you were talking about food, I could see, um, you know, a, a nice seafood dish of some sort, uh, really going nicely with that, summer salads, uh, and a hot patio. Uh, when we're recording this, it's only 16 degrees in Toronto right now. It is summer, but it is a kind Just of a cool summer day. Well, not technically summer. It's in May. This is going to be out probably in July or August where it's legit summer. Well, it's... it's but I'll tell you something. It's June. I'm just telling you that because right. you said it was May. Um, but okay. it is June. Early June. We're still not at, we're still not at the 20th. Yeah, this no. will go great with your spring asparagus. Yep, definitely. Wonderful. So, definitely. So we're going to move along for, uh, I guess, wine number two. Now, this uh, is what you... This is, I saw Andre finished his glass very quickly of this, and I saw him take his more first sip, and uh, his his face lit up, his eyes bugged out. He actually had to pick his chin uh, yeah. off the floor. Uh, it's Andre's favorite grape variety, and one that you said was uh, was well, going to be. But there's you know, there's res- restraint and and depth to this somehow at the same time. Like it's got like a popcorn note, but it's not like a California, like, jumping out of the glass. It's restrained, and it's layered over more orchard fruit, and uh, texture is, it's it's trying to be rich, but at the same time, the acidity keeps it somehow light on the back palate. Yeah, we're we're shooting for, I, I guess the first thing I would say about making Chardonnay, it's so much fun, because here's a variety, you can make it with no wood, you can make it with uh, lots of wood. You can make it with no mallow. Or you can do 100% mallow on it. Like the winemaker can put their footprint or their fingerprint on the wine. Uh, that's the first thing that's fun, fun about it. The, this, the second thing, I, I think when you're making Chardonnay, it's a little bit like the red. It's very important, or the gruner for that matter. I, I think you have to think Tell me if I'm wrong, but you have to think. Yeah, one of us is going to tell you you're wrong. You have yeah, to. I'll do it you, you have to think about if you have a style you want to make. You have to think about where am I going to get those grapes? The 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 place that you take the fruit from, the terroir has to be consistent with the style you're trying to make. Like this, uh, if we'd made this the first two years. When we bought the land, we had 10 acres of old vines down on it, 18-year-old vines. Wide spacing, didn't know the clones, didn't know the rootstocks. Um, Chardonnay, Gamay, Cabernet, and Merlot. Um, 
made wine, the, the best of the three in the flavor and the fruit was the Chardonnay. Made wine from it for two years. It was good, but it was never going to be like this. And we knew right away that was my dilemma. That's why I ended up calling this wine Dilemma. We did, and I had to really re- convince Elaine and Sarah because it was the pain I went through of ripping out those old vines because we knew we needed a cooler site to, to do what we wanted to do here because the hotter site wasn't going to give us that crisp acid and the finish that, that that we needed in the... Um, so you're talking that the grapes have to be in a proper site. We're not talking about it representing terroir, per se, well, t- but basically... Terroir is site, yes. temperature, minerality of the soils, way, the way the wind blows, the way the sun comes at it. Correct, but Chardonnay is also known as, as the uh, winemaker's grape. Yes. Uh, so... Chardonnay gets played with all the time, yeah, so it's not like a Riesling where you really show off that terroir aspect because it just goes from ground to bottle. And, and, well, and this then the little parts I, I, I would suggest that the, the this wine, if we put it on a lot of hotter sites, you wouldn't end up. No matter how, how great a winemaker you were, you wouldn't end up with this. See, to me, this is a very weighty Chardonnay. It's well, for, well first <laughs> of all, you've been drinking too much unoaked Chardonnay, Michael. Let, I don't drink any unoaked Chardonnay, Andrew. Let, let, let's let's talk about this. And this see, I just is, came from Napa, the Napa. The, sorry to interrupt, but I just came back from Napa, right? Mm-hmm. And as far as weight is concerned, this is cool climate written all over it. What what really hits me first of all, though, besides the weight of the Chardonnay, is that acidity. Like it just goes nuts mm-hmm. on acidity. That's the first thing that hits my palate. Okay, let's talk about that. <laughs> the acidity, first of all, this is one-third 76 clone, two-thirds 548, relatively low yield, degree days, very similar to Dijon, 1,280 degree days. Um, we whole bunch pressed this, we fermented it in combination of new wood, one-year-old wood, and stainless, and we did a mallow, this year, on only 40% of it. That's where the acidity comes from. Yeah. We hung on to quite a bit of that acid. The year before, higher residual acidity in the fruit, we did a 60% mallow. Okay. So we adjust the malolactic ferment to hit an end target in the acid we want in the final wine. Got it. Okay. Okay? All right. So if there's less there to start with, we convert less of it to... Uh, uh, to lactic. Got it. But if there's more there to start with, we'll take a bit more. Because it's not what is, who's it, John F. Kennedy says, it's not what is, but what could be that's important. Yeah. And and that and that's what we're trying to do here. It's going to be interesting to try this yeah. wine in, let's say, that sweet spot of five to six years, just to see where it's at. Five to six months. I heard what you said, Michael. Yeah, that's that's how long things last in your cellar. Especially when it's Chardonnay. I'd like to see this age a little bit because you were talking about you want to do, uh, you know, wines that age. And just I to think see it would be interesting to see the, the acid think, the acid relax a little bit and maybe right. let's, and maybe the fruit, all, all, maybe all the fruit come up a little a, a little bit because. Uh, what are we looking at? A year of uh, 2015, which is a hot vintage. This was a hot vintage. Yeah. So let's move on to the next one. I would. <laughs> I would I, I'm I would, so I, excited. <laughs> I would like. I would like to see this in that time. So um, uh, yeah, 
come back as often as possible, but when you come back in five years, bring this wine again. We'll have our chat and yeah. see where where it has gone because I'd, I'd I'd love to see and where it goes. and, uh, and uh, by year uh, you know some it's like any other ones some some wines will age better than others Correct. yeah like our fourteen had higher residual acidity yeah it's uh, a cool year cooler year it though, was a it? cooler year the sixteen is a cooler this year was the hottest year yeah. that we've had on record in the last twenty years oh really okay okay so. Uh, I'm hope uh, you know we'll we'll, if, we'll wait to see. We'll wait and see on that one. I, yeah, but uh, yeah, the acidity, the acidity is good. It really hits me at the moment. And Andre's gonna just your eye now. I'm gonna read ready for your eyes to bug. At the moment, this is not my Chardonnay. That's okay. But as I said, in Andre. five years, I'd like to see. If it becomes my Chardonnay. This is the nice thing about being friends with you, though, is because I don't have the patience to hold on to a bottle. I'm hoping that a bottle of this shows up at my house in five years and you're going to be like, I told you so. All right. And we'll see. I'm happy to eat my words. Happy to eat my words. Speaking of other bottles that probably could age, but don't, it's the next one now. Which one am I having? I'm just asking. Well, okay, we, so I, 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 I would just cap that up. So, I, I'd be delighted to share this wine with you in five years. Perfect. Mark that I'll down on the table. We'll to make it. sure uh-huh. look we send that over. We'll have to take this show on the road. Oh, love now, the BC. The R&D bottle really stands out on the, the shelf because it's a really cool photo of two young boys mm-hmm. sitting there. Now, this is you and your twin brother. Yeah, the original name, R&D, it, it, the original idea was to celebrate all the research and development we did in developing the vineyard. Yep. Like we did 26 soil pits, sent the samples to Bordeaux and to Guelph. We did, had six weather stations collecting two years of data every 15 minutes, evapotranspiration, relative humidity, wind, precipitation, etc. And that was what we were celebrating, was our science and understanding our vineyard. Okay. Then my daughter got a hold of it. She said, Dad, I had this brainwave. This isn't research and development. It's the Ron and Don wine. Yeah. Because I have a twin brother, Ron, and I'm Don. And so she gets a picture from my sister. Didn't talk to me. <laughs> and the next thing you know, it's on the label. So I sort of got scoopered in that. Now that photo, is that before or after you had to draw match six? Oh, that was much earlier. All right. Much earlier. And this is, uh, that we're 11 years old there. You know, the the problem Uh, that we have with BC wine in Ontario straight up is it's tough to get a good, affordable bottle down here. And I know when this has gone through vintages last time, it was $24.95. And, uh, I mean, no pressure to you, but you're the flagship for getting people my age into BC wine in Ontario because you've got to convince me to spend the 50 bucks on a Soyuz La Rose. Mm-hmm. And now Hypothesis will have been out, let's see, June 23rd. So there should be a few bottles kicking around. And Burrowing Owl comes through here. And it was heartbreaking when I visited that winery in, in BC because mm-hmm. the wines there are affordable, but you add that $10, $15 onto the bottle when it gets down here. The wines are still great, but it's just it's, it's tough just to convince me to spend fifty dollars on my first bottle. BC wine, you know. So this is how 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 is this? This is the Merlot dominant, this fifteen vintage, a real warm year, the warmest on record. Uh, for red, uh, it's um, 
small amounts of cab uh, franc cab sub about ten percent each. Light treatment of French oak, nine months. Toasted heads in the barrels, a little toastiness mm-hmm. in the character. It's definitely a toastiness to it. Yep. Yeah. A little bit of a leatheriness to it. Yep. Um, I got a little bit of cocoa and like. Uh, yeah, cocoa. That's good. Wood yeah. smoke too, like yep. like blacks. Black yeah, that's the, that's the toast from the. Yeah, a lot of toasty characteristics to this wine. But still, a lot of like it's 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 black currant, but once again restrained, not like California black currant. A uh, little but bit the, of raspberry to that. When I when I get this kind of leatheriness though, and maybe it's because of the heat, I'm thinking South Africa, because I get that leathery kind of uh, toasty note to it. Um, but the interesting part about South African wine is that as it ages, that leatheriness, that smokiness kind of dissipates and that fruit kind of comes up. So for a $24 bottle of wine, if you're not into that toasty, leatheriness, just let it sit five, seven, even 10 years. And then, and then suddenly, its own problem. Yeah, it resol- it, yeah, exactly. It resolves its own problem. So if what's, it's a problem. If it's a problem to you. Well, the thing about, and the thing about this wine too is like you say, five to seven years. And I... Dear listeners of this podcast, I actually do have a collection of bottles that is growing, and I do have the patience to age wine. But the tannin is so soft and integrated in this. Very I don't have the patience to age this because it's a red wine that's ready to go now. But if I, but if I told it you, it really seven, is. The tannins are soft. But if I told the, you in seven years, you you really love that wine if you just had the patience. To find out more fruit, less toast, I think you'd you'd jump at the opportunity to fast forward. We're probably going to, you know, when we have our winemaking discussions, we may back off a little bit on the wood on this. Yeah, Um, and that it's under screw cap means that it has some really good ageability, and that drives me absolutely crazy when I hear people say, "Oh, wine's under screw cap, don't age." Uh, uh, No. Hey, let's 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 let's, let's throw a shout out to Bruce Walner for the social media. He says corks are for dorks. Well, I, I'm I'm a big fan of screw cap, and I wish more people would get behind them and it, for ageable reds. And this I find is an ageable red, and being that it is under screw cap, will I, I think it really will show well five, seven, almost ten years down the road. I think people would be thrilled that they bought that for twenty four dollars because in ten years it's no longer going to be twenty four dollars. Yep. Just well, this is. Uh, I'll tell you what this is. This is all our young vines. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and as our young vines age, hopefully a lot more of it is going to go into our hypothesis, yeah. and uh, and make it even a more concentrated, uh, finer tan and wine. But or um, you could just you know what you can only make so much hypothesis just. Uh, Boost the quality of the R and D. Yeah, well, that's that's that. part of the issue. You always you get a little bit stingier about what goes in. I mean, it's a terrible business decision, but it would make me very happy. Yeah. So, so this next wine hypothesis two thousand and twenty thirteen. Okay, this was the third year of hypothesis. Thirty eight percent Merlot, thirty six Cab Franc, twenty six Cab Sauv, sixteen months in French oak, sixty percent new. So Mer- Just, you're very Merlot dominant. I'm noticing that in your wines. Um, it's, it's BC. The original vineyard, red vineyard that we planted, forty percent Merlot, twenty six percent roughly of Cab Franc, 
24% of Kapsov. Uh, and then the balance split with a tiny bit of Syrah, but Malbec and Petit Verdot. The decisions on those varieties was based on the temperature data we had, uh, the best we could do in assessing what we were going to consider, and the suitability even within the site. Like, you could say because of the temperature data, why didn't we plant at 50% Capsov? My French consultant and I would disagree that that had that potential on that site. Merlot is the most... Merlot doesn't like high heat, as you know. We have it all along the mountain shadow, where it's getting the benefit of slightly cooler afternoons. Uh, so this is... Um, just starting to say hello. This this was bottled almost three years ago. I would agree with that. I was just given a production note that this bottle was opened and decanted, double decanted at 9 a.m. this morning. Wow. And I'm still getting fuzziness from the... Yeah, uh, there's lots of... Fuzziness lots of from the, the tannin on it, which means that mm. this is an infant. But there's... We're seeing all the fruit coming out of it, and it's got... Dark chocolate, tobacco, a little bit of cedar showing up. It's still got a, a lot of road in front of it. Yeah. So you say here is an aging potential because we have some notes in front of us, five to ten years. Nope. Uh, I'd say ten say, to twenty. I would easy. say a little bit longer than that for 10 sure. Ten to twenty, yeah. easy to, to be. Um, I would. I would. I would buy this to age it. To be candid, when we print stuff. We're always very conservative on the aging. As most people should be, yes. Because we don't know if they're storing it beside their fireplace yeah. yes. or or wherever, or temperatures going up and down in a room or wherever. So we always go on the real short side. Mm -hmm. uh, reality, I think this is 10 to 20 years mm -hmm. yes. easily. 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 Yeah. That's a beautiful wine. That's really showing, thick. like, the, the, it's, as with all of your wines, it's holding on to that cool climate element. It's got the ripeness of the fruit. Nothing is jammy. It's got that it's acidity to it. perfectly ripe fruit. And the acids, the and acidity this, is the best part. And this was a warm, cool year. You mean warm at the beginning, cool in the end? No, uh, 11 was a cool year. 12 was a, a slightly less cool year. 13 was starting to get warm, yeah. but still cool. Okay. 14 was warm, 15 was a hot, warm year. So this year, fifthly fruit, okay. young vines, uh, still got all of the fruit totally ripe, lower yields to help do that, but very, our, I think I might have mentioned our vineyard is planted at very high density, 50% more vines. It's not as high as uh, Latour, Lafitte, Mouton, which are at 4,000 vines to the acre. As high as the but, uh, Standard in the valley, an 8 by 4 foot row is 1,296 vines to the acre. Okay. Soyuz rose, they kept the 8 foot width but went tighter within the row. Mm -hmm. yep. They're at 1,596 vines to the acre. Yes. This is at 2,044 vines to the acre. We've forced to narrower rows, so we had to import Italian tractors, mm. smaller tractors, and all that junk. So this is very narrow row. This is the same density as Opus in California. Opus is a meter by two meters. 
we're 1.8 by 1.1. We're talking about California same. right now, though. This yeah. wine is so good. Yeah. And it is, it, is, it is so chalky on the finish that it's, it, it, it is screaming, you know, as, a, as an infant would, don't drink me now. It's, 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 yeah, it, it needs that age even. But nine, with, 9 a.m. It's, it's but, open at 9 a.m. Like, I, I would have, if I wanted to serve this for dinner, I would have had to have opened this bottle yesterday. Probably yesterday morning. Um, mm. Nice piece of red meat yes, with a little I, bit of marbling in the meat. We're that. sitting here tasting this as if without food. Without you put this. We had a, we had uh, had a dinner last night at with we all had uh, a medium rare steak. Yeah, I can see this. And it was it just melted in our mouths. Yeah. Medium rare steak with a nice, uh, like a yeah. Uh, but I don't want to drink this steak with spice meat. I just want to drink it, it on no, itself. No, no. Thing, well, then this, you better decant it. This this this, requ- this yeah, requires yeah. food. Like this is definitely this a is, food wine. Yeah. But any red meat, even yeah. da- maybe not real lean red meat, like yeah. uh, like buffalo or something like that, or no. emu. But if you get into stuff like just uh, good beef. Emu. Did you just say emu? Emu. Yeah. So you got emus running around. The, like, how often uh, do you eat emu, Don? I've had it a couple times in Australia. Okay. It's yeah, very actually. lean meat. Something that you don't and grow on the farm in Manitoba. No, something I never got to try. Did you try kangaroo when you were in yes, Australia? Yes, I did. Yeah. I did not get to try kangaroo. And I've tried crocodile. That looks like chicken. Uh, yeah, it does. All right. Well, that. just so we can sort of start to wind yeah. this down, it's really. Fascinating because when I was out in BC, as I told you off, and I'm sure I've mentioned it on this podcast before, and I know I said it to Sarah as well, your winery is right now the winery that everyone is saying when you go to that south part of the Okanagan, you got to go to Don Triggs' place. What is the future vision for Colmena? It is your last project, or your wife sounds like she's going to hurt you. Um, what is our future vision? I think the people are... Uh, are coming to Coma. I think the wines are interesting. I also think it's the hospitality, and uh, and the fact that we really appreciate everyone comes that comes, and that we uh, uh, we we really like having family around us. Uh, it's um, uh, um, uh, our approach. Our approach to people coming and visiting is we sit down. Take a load off and enjoy the people in the wine. That's what it's about. Uh, it's uh, and and I think uh, as long as we do that, I think maybe we'll be okay. I I just want to thank you for coming in, taking a load off with us. For, yeah, yeah uh, taking a load off, drinking some wine, talking Ontario, talking BC. Cheers. It was fabulous to have you here. Thank you for making it, the time, Don. It was all mine. It was all. You know, Michael, I love when we when we talk to some of the people on the Legacy series, and you feel inspired because um, taking a look at what Don has done—that he was able to build Jackson Triggs from the ground up, and to come from a farming background and put all that together, and then to try to start it all over again out in BC, and obviously creating a bit of a, a buzz about it as well—is just. I mean, it, it's really inspiring to see that even the legacy people in this podcast are contributing to the the future of the industry. And it's a different paradigm now that he that, that what he's doing, right? Like yes. he's he's now a small winery, not a big winery, and he can't just blend or do whatever. He's got to use 
his own his own stuff. And I think well, it's, it's almost so as neat. If, it's that almost as seeing the, it from the other side. It's almost as if the definition of of premium wine has has changed for him because at the time when Jackson Triggs was founded. That was entry level premium wines because we were still working on erasing the the hybrid days, the Chateau Gay days, and he was making BQA wines. And now he's just pushed the bar higher. And that hypothesis was so good. And I mean, I'm a big fan of Osiris Lourdes de Grand Vin and still am, but it's just nice to see something with a little bit more of that old world sensibility about it coming from BC because so much of it. Is almost like it's it's got its face looking towards California. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's just interesting. <laughs> but I mean, it's interesting to see that you've got uh, a, a variety. Nothing wrong with that. No, but I mean, there isn't anything wrong with it. I love my my burrowing owl and uh, Incomeep and uh, Black Hills, but these are really large, jammy, fruity wines. Hypothesis and Le Grand Vin offer a little bit more restraint, in my opinion. You know, the the part of that podcast I will never forget besides sitting down and listening to Donald Triggs, and him telling us what the winery could have been named. Yep. Wrote that out on a napkin, so yep. I have all those five names. But was the look on your face when he poured you the Chardonnay, I thought you were going to drop a load right there. You were just, your eyes bugged out, you smiled at me from across the table, and uh, and I'm, I'm looking at you, and Don kind of looks at me, then I'm like, look over at him and he kind of looks at you and he's and you're like i'm so happy <laughs> but you know what part of that podcast i'm never gonna forget which the fact that don's almost from saskatchewan almost from saskatchewan <laughs> it's like almost pregnant <laughs> i'm andre Peru from andrewinereview.ca please subscribe to this podcast this was a great one, so definitely feel free to share the link with anyone. Post it wherever you want. These are stories that need to be shared, and it's amazing that Don's still writing his uh, long after founding Jackson Triggs. So make sure you check out Coleman Winery if you're ever out in BC. And uh, big thank you to Woodman Wines for uh, for getting in touch with us and saying that he's going to be in town. Uh, that Who was are you? thrilled. I am Michael Pingus of MichaelPingusWineReview.com, and just like I do almost every podcast. Good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.